Welcome to Holy Smoke, the Spectator's Religion Podcast. I'm Damien Thompson. Here's a strange thing. In our unbelieving age, with church attendance and organised Christianity falling off a cliff, there's unflagging enthusiasm for visiting cathedrals, going on retreat, and even going on pilgrimage. A few years ago, I was astonished when a very bright young colleague of mine, Guy Stagg, threw in his job and, as it seemed, hurled himself into a full-scale solo pilgrimage to Jerusalem via Rome, choosing arduous routes in difficult weather. Now he's written a book about it, The Crossway. And the first thing you learn is that Guy isn't a believer, wasn't when he started, still isn't. He joins me today, along with Harry Mount, editor of The Oldie, an expert on the holy buildings and holy things of Christendom, but again, not a believer. So, obviously, I'm puzzled by this vicarious thirst for the sacred. But first, Guy, I'm not surprised that Crossway has made an impact. Congratulations. Because some of it is hair-raising. For example, you crossed a broken wooden bridge in Switzerland and, and ended up half submerged in the water held up by your rucksack. You went out in the Alps to continue your journey and whether the, well, locals had told you not to, which is normally a good idea to take their advice. Why? If you had asked me before I started walking why I was going to Rome, Istanbul and Jerusalem, I would have told you that it was an adventure, that it was uh, an exciting opportunity, that I might learn a bit more about religion along the way. And this was true, but it wasn't the truth. The real reason was that in the years prior to the walk, I'd had quite a long period of mental illness. And although I was over the worst of that, I was off antidepressants, I was no longer seeing therapists, I still felt as if my life lacked purpose, meaning, a sense of direction. And I hoped that maybe I would be able to find those things on the journey. But this is obviously a strange thing for a non-believer to hope that by taking part in a ritual, they will in some way be able to heal themselves. And this was not something I understood very well when I set out, although over the course of the journey, it became more and more clear to me that religious ritual can still have meaning, even if you don't believe. How? Well, to give you an example, when you're walking in countries that you you don't know very well, you don't know the language, you don't know the culture, things are unfamiliar, you're placed into a position of vulnerability. And that vulnerability forces you to ask people for help. It forces you to put yourself upon the mercy and the charity of the strangers that you meet. And this is, in a small way, a method of building up the muscle of humility. So one way of thinking about ritual is as a form of moral training. And this can have benefits whether or not you buy into the metaphysics, the theology behind it. And Actually, I agree. I just asked you, you know, how, in an almost rather aggressive way. But of course, so many people in church for great occasions, or even small ones, aren't actually really believers, but they find the ritual enormously helpful. Harry, surely that's been your experience. Yes, and I used to be an atheist, and now I'm an agnostic. And one of the changing points was meeting a monk, and I told him I was an atheist, and he said, I understand you're like looking at buildings, which I do, and I said yes. 
He said, don't you find a difference between going around country houses, which I do a lot, and going into churches? And I said, yes, I do. And there is a different feeling there. And then he said, no aggression. He said, well, that's religion. And I thought it was a bit pie at the time. But actually, he's right. I don't believe, but I do feel, what's the word, more spiritual in a church. And funnily enough, last weekend, I went to a party in Dorset and the next morning hungover was bicycling 15 miles back from Wimborne St Giles to Salisbury and I stopped in the church Wimborne St Giles empty on a Sunday morning before the service extremely beautiful 18th century building with incredible sculptures of various Lord Shaftesbury's incredibly beautiful quiet empty and cool on a very hot day and I found myself as I often do sitting in a pew putting my head in my hands and thinking about things, slightly miserable and hungover, but I was almost accidentally in a praying position, and I do that a lot. And the man who nails this is Philip Larkin in Church Going, his wonderful poem about going to a church, so well known. He, an agnostic, I think, probably, but he describes finding a hunger in himself for something more serious. And combine that with a place where people are christened, get married, and well, they don't die there, but they have their funerals there. It all comes together to produce an incredibly spiritual place. You're using the word spiritual but not religious. Yeah. yeah. And Guy's also implied that he's spiritual, not religious. He's talked about healing but not about religious experience. It's almost as like people are terrified of the R word. I have a vision of you sort of semi-kneeling, perhaps in that rather strange Anglican way, in your church, awfully embarrassed by the thought that somebody might mistake you for a worshipper. Now, I wouldn't mind that at all. And I'm all for, I thoroughly respect people who are religious and the complete reverse of Richard Dawkins, who I think is extremely rude to those who believe. I just don't happen to believe in these things. But I don't know what you would call it. Spirituality, seriousness, thought, contemplation. You can have all these things without actually believing in a higher power. And you can ask, you know, what do you mean by belief? And I'd just like to remind people that nobody's ever satisfactorily defined the word religion. But, Guy, you talked about going in search of healing, that the experience of other people's kindness strengthened the sort of muscles of humility and the ability to contemplate in you. Did you feel growing within yourself something you might describe as an openness to the transcendent, a spirituality? Before I set out on the journey, I didn't really understand what happened when people prayed I presumed that they close their eyes, that they mutter under their breath, and that they ask for a new job, a new car, a new girlfriend, whatever, whatever it is that they want. And on the course of the journey, I was spending many, many nights with monks and with nuns in monasteries and in convents, and I would try and go to the services with the people who had taken me in. And I began to get a bit of an understanding of what exactly religious communities do all day, what happens when they're praying. And... The insight that I gained was that these men and women have an inner life, they have an inner landscape, and that by spending time worshipping, by spending time in prayer, they can expand that, they can explore that, and they acquire resources which they can then carry out into the material world, which hopefully will make them kinder, more patient, more generous, less afraid of death. And what I did gain was I gained an insight into that experience. This was a world of experience 
shall we say, mystical experience, which I didn't know existed. And although I didn't have those transcendent experiences myself, simply to get an insight into the possibility of that experience was very powerful for me. And although not a believer, you were definitely on a pilgrimage. It was a one-man pilgrimage, which made you, I suppose, a pilgrim. And did you think of yourself as a pilgrim, as opposed to somebody going through the motions of a pilgrimage? I did, yes. There were several reasons for that. First of all, I was trying to recreate as closely as possible a medieval pilgrimage. I was trying to follow these pilgrim paths. I was trying to stay in monasteries, convents, presbyteries. I was trying to go to services every day. So in terms of the the mechanics, the everyday mechanics, I was trying to carry out that pilgrimage. But also, I was spending a lot of time thinking about why I was alive, what made me happy, what made me content, thinking about the fundamental questions. And I think the difference between... And what had made you sad. And and the difficulty that I was trying to walk away from as well. And I think the main difference between a pilgrimage and just going hiking, going rambling, is not the fact that you've chosen a sacred site. It's the fact that because you've given it this uh, ritualistic framework, you're being encouraged to think about these kind of ultimate questions that we spend a lot of our lives either ignoring or distracting ourselves from. One of the things you mentioned in the book is that there's been an astonishing increase in the popularity of certain pilgrimages, for example, the pilgrimage to Compostela in Spain, which has increased, what are the, what are the numbers since, since the 1980s? The numbers have increased from... In the 1980s, it was close to single figures, the number of people doing it every year. And now you have hundreds of thousands going now, every year. Some of that could, I think, just be described as spiritual tourism. On the other hand, something that comes out from your book is that some other pilgrims like you seeking to heal themselves from difficult experiences and do actually bear the scars of those experiences. Some of the people you describe beautifully are rather eccentric and difficult, and you found yourself not really ideal companions. for. When people do the pilgrimage to Santiago, when they finish the Camino, they normally have to fill in a questionnaire before they are given their certificate to show that they've done it. And I don't know the exact statistics, but I think it's over half of people when they're giving the reasons why they've done the journey don't put religion as either the first reason or indeed don't mention religion as a reason at all. So it's something like a significant minority or even the majority are walking this route primarily for non-religious reasons. And then you've got to ask yourself, well, why are they doing it? And is it possibly that they are essentially looking for substitute forms of religion? So they maybe want to ask fundamental questions. Why am I here? What's a good life? What makes me happy? Is there any ultimate purpose to the universe? But they, for cultural or biographical reasons, are not comfortable entering traditional religious spaces, churches, cathedrals, monasteries possibly, and asking those questions, or using the traditional methods of asking those questions, liturgy and theology and a bit of doctrine. And I think what they find on the Camino and what I found on my own pilgrimage was that this gives them an alternative way into these questions. The barriers of entry are much lower, as it were. Okay, so you ask them these questions. Dangerous thing to do because they might actually answer and, sorry to be rude, but bore you to death because I'm afraid I find that people who describe themselves as spiritual but not religious are definitely to be avoided at parties because they're basically making it up as they're going along. And there's a rather narcissistic and self-centred and often extremely opinionated quality to their amorphous reflections. Do you find that, Harry? 
Yes, to a certain extent. And while I was talking about spirituality, I don't think of myself as a spiritual person, but I was just trying to struggle to find a word which would replace a religion which I don't feel. I also think, talking about pilgrimages, a lot of practices which are damned as being religious are actually also very natural, secular, if you like, exercises. So isn't it funny that in recent years the biggest diet book in decades has been the Michael Mosley 5-2 diet, which is essentially about fasting, which is more normally associated with religion, but actually very good for us often, particularly in a time in a world full of extremely and, fat, and overweight use, people. We obviously use the vocabulary of religion. And we're strangely attracted by religious language when we talk about these diets. The fasting is a religious concept, and not just a Christian one, of course. Control of diet is central to so many religious practices around the world. We talk about the sinfulness of various foods. We talk about not just detoxification, but cleansing, a new you. So there's a sort of inbuilt, rather expensive spirituality attached to these practices. But I completely agree. You know, it's very hard to decide where a so-called religious practice ends and where a secular one begins. But then also, some um, scholars would say that Western scholars of religion have a rather too narrow understanding of religion anyway. And that if you draw the boundaries too tight, then you're going to end up excluding Buddhism, for example, which, which doesn't believe in God. But also, we do live in a sort of essentially secular age, don't we, in modern Britain? But you can't cast off 2,000 years of pretty intense Christianity, and even before that, you know, Celtic worship, whatever it was, um, that easily. We live on, on the fag ends of these things in our thoughts, in our behaviour, in our words and our deeds, don't we? So, of course, it's still there, even in, even in those like me who call ourselves agnostic. Guy, did you find that some of the physical relics and ritual practices of very old-fashioned Catholic and Eastern Christianity were actually alien to you, even repugnant to you? Bewildering is the main thing that I found. So when I started going to Catholic monastic services, they were familiar enough from the Anglican service I was more used to, to have some sense of what was going on. But then when I started spending time in the Balkans, for example, visiting Orthodox churches, I had no idea what was going on. The language was unfamiliar, the liturgy was unfamiliar, and even the shape of the service. I wasn't sure when was the Gospel reading, when was the Eucharist. This really remained the case until I went to Mount Athos. Mount Athos is the monastic republic in Greece. You visit and you basically spend your time either staying in the monasteries or walking between the monasteries. And when you're in the monasteries, you're encouraged to live as closely as possible as you can following the monastic timetable. They live by Byzantine time, they begin the day at sunset, they get up essentially in the middle of the night, they spend the first four hours of the day in church, and then they finally have their first... And they ban not only females, but female animals. Yes, there are no women, and that applies to the animal kingdom as well as the human. And they hate Catholics with an intensity that the late Ian Paisley must have envied. They're not keen on Catholics, but they are extremely keen on Prince Charles, who they believe is a covert orthodox and is keeping that fact. They may have a point. He he crosses himself in the orthodox fashion. So I would spend time going to these very long services and initially of course I was tired and I was bored. I didn't know what was going on. But the more time I spent in these services, the less time I spent trying to essentially analyse them to work out what was happening and the more I tried to enter some sort of passive or receptive state. And very occasionally I would find that I really moved beyond boredom to whatever is beyond boredom, which is that brief glimpse you get of time closing up, of a sense of self diffusing slightly, 
it was very brief and I wouldn't want to make any metaphysical claims for it, but I was only able to get there by going through the long periods of you know, boredom and confusion. Do you think you could have achieved the same benefits or experienced the same insights if you'd gone on a non-Christian pilgrimage, for example, a Muslim pilgrimage or a Buddhist pilgrimage? Because most religious communities have practices which we might conveniently call pilgrimages. One of the things that the Dalai Lama says to his many celebrity followers is he doesn't want more people to become Tibetan Buddhists. He wants people to rediscover their own religious traditions. And so going back to what Harry was saying, one of the advantages for me at least about spending time on a Christian pilgrimage was I was rediscovering practices which would have been familiar or standard for people only a few centuries ago. I felt that there was a a cultural heritage which, through a combination of apathy and ignorance, I had rejected, and that I was able to re-engage with this through the practices. Okay, but sorry to sound a discordant note, but for the early Christians, those of whom gave their lives because of their absolutely firm belief in the risen Christ, engaging with Christianity as cultural heritage would have been absolutely meaningless. Maybe that would have been the same for medieval pilgrims as well. But fundamentally, they were visiting these sites because Jesus rose from the dead. If you don't believe that, why bother? They might ask. Well, it depends which early Christians you ask. Some of the very earliest Christians that we have evidence of didn't know how Jesus died. So even though the main church obviously had agreed on a position of that, that didn't happen, as you know, until later in the history of the church. So it is possible, I think, to engage with the religion that I know best, Christianity, the resurrection is there from the very early, earliest Christian texts, which is, of course, Paul, not the Gospels. But I, I agree with you that there are many, many different varieties of Christianity, most of which we would regard as bizarre Gnostic heresies. Yeah. But even so, they were founded on belief, even if the beliefs were different. But also, I think you can, you won't approve of this, Damien, but you can piggyback off other people's strong feelings. I don't know what you thought. Oh, no, I do approve it because I do it all the time. Right. But um, I don't know what you thought, Guy, of Hagia Sophia, you know, the wonderful former church, then a mosque in Istanbul, and now a museum, a secular museum. Yeah, for the time being. Well, exactly. And actually, it's a wonderful building, and I, as a lover of old buildings, absolutely adore it. But I think something is lost by the fact that it's not religious. I'd have felt it power of the building more if it had been a mosque, and even more... I think something uh, terrible was lost when one of the greatest churches of Christendom ceased to be a church and became a mosque. For me, whether it's a mosque or museum makes no difference whatsoever. Right, OK, exactly. We, we can argue about the differences, but the fact that it's not religious, even for a non-religious person, had a lessening effect on my enjoyment. Interesting, interesting. The other thing I would say is important is that, as I understand, the average believer's faith is not... 8 out of 10, 9 out of 10, every day, every week. It goes up and down. But despite that fact, they still go to church every Sunday, for example, or try as best as they can to follow the religious teaching of Christ. Going back to what we were saying about the spiritual but not religious, it's not a term that I use myself. I prefer the term practising non-believer, which is a bit closer to what I do. Personally, I, I go to church about twice a month, and I try and live by some very vague approximation of the gospel teaching. What sort teaching. of church? I'm now very curious. What sort of church? Let me guess, Book of Common Prayer? Uh, yes, Book of Common Prayer yeah. is what I prefer. Um, Are you worshipping the language? I'm not sure. I don't think very hard about it. I think what I'm trying to do is to keep in touch with some of the insights that I gained 
while on this but walk. Was that how you were brought up in, in that Anglican tradition? At school, I would go to church uh, twice a week, but my parents were not practising. The point is that I think that if you're taking part in these practices, then this is to some extent an act of faith, which I think is more important, really, than whether or not you think the tomb was empty, as it were. Do you think the penny might have a drop, as it were, and that you might acquire some variety of religious belief as a result of this consistent exposure, which, after all, is, is how many people acquire religious belief, in fact, probably everybody acquires religious belief in the first place? It might do. I'm fairly agnostic about that question itself. I don't think that the most important thing is really whether or not you, for example, have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. In my experience, and this is based on the walk with the the people I met, the kindness I was shown time after time, people who are trying to live out the gospel teaching, they seem to me a closer, a more powerful evangelical tool, closer to the truth of these texts than people who proclaim the fact that Jesus is their personal no, saviour. I couldn't agree more with you, Guy, Harry. That's, that's been my experience as well, Harry. Yes, I think I might well end up, as I say, I've gone from being an atheist to an agnostic. Give me a couple of weeks, I may well be a full-blown monk. But actually... You talked about school. I went to Westminster School just down the road from here and we had three services in the Abbey every week. Completely took it for granted. Not just the services, but one of the most beautiful buildings in the world. Now I'm completely obsessed with it. I went back the other day, they got a new Queen Elizabeth II galleries there in the Triforium there. Utterly astounding. And I'm amazed that I was such an idiot and not taking it when I, I was I a child. I read your wonderful article in the Catacarol on that but, very subject. But so... At the same time, despite being indifferent to it when I was a child, I think some of it does, I don't know if you'd agree, Guy, some of it does seep in. So there I was staring into space thinking about other things. But I was listening to bits of the liturgy and, and know the hymns off by heart. And as you get older, and as Philip Larkin says, become more serious, who knows But the two might chime together the childhood pattern, indifferent supposedly to these things, with, with a greater knowledge, and it might spark off real religion. Who knows? On that fascinating note, guys tag Harry Mount. Thank you very much. <laughs>